This is Wessler Media. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, thanks for jumping into this episode about the incredible life of Jeff Ruby in this series of profiles. If you would, give us a five-star review and also share this episode with a friend. It would really help us spread the word about this podcast. Thanks. Let's listen in. This is a Wessler Media production. I don't know how you're going to squeeze us into 90 minutes, but what, that's your job. We'll see. You guys. We'll see what happens. I have no problem if you don't believe me, fine. Okay? But the truth is, I was a loser in loving every minute of it. I wasn't doing anything. I didn't have any any goals. He said, why do you want to go to Cincinnati? Well, I'm a Reds fan, and that's why I want to go. I never wanted to have the most steakhouses in the country. I wanted to have the best steakhouses in the country. All I want to do is get in fights. These guys had more fights, more calls to the police department there than ever before collectively. And when the cops get there and break it up, your manager's at the bottom of the fight. Here's the difference between you and me. You report the news. I create the news. From Westler Media, this is Profiles. I'm Vince Tornero. In many ways, the episode you're about to listen to is a failure. In our hubris, we at Westler Media believed we could tell the complete story of Jeff Ruby, the acclaimed Cincinnati restaurateur, in a single episode. In our arrogance, we believed that Jeff Ruby's larger-than-life persona could be captured with a microphone, uploaded to a computer, and shipped off in a neat and tidy podcast episode. But we were wrong. And after you're done listening to this episode, after you're done learning about how Jeff ran away from home in high school, how he became the lead singer of a band that opened and closed for Sly and the Family Stone, instigated a wrestling match with Johnny Bench in the Reds' locker room during the 75 World Series, lost 20% of his brain after jumping out of a moving car, and famously kicked O.J. Simpson out of one of his restaurants, you may think you know Jeff Ruby, but you'd be wrong too. Although he was born in New Jersey, Jeff Ruby's story belongs to Ohio. This past September was the 40th anniversary of the precinct opening, Jeff's first restaurant in Cincy. So we traveled down 71 to learn more about this guy. Mr. Ruby kindly agreed to meet us at the Jeff Ruby Steakhouse in downtown Cincinnati for an interview. You could feel his presence instantly. He has this aura about him, a je ne sais quoi that makes him feel more like a movie character than a real-life person. It's an attribute only amplified by his choice of wardrobe, which could easily be confused with that of a character from a Martin Scorsese movie. Jeff had scheduled the interview to last 90 minutes, but he ended up speaking with us for four and a half hours after realizing that 90 minutes barely covered his childhood. He smoked a cigar the entire time with a flicking sound of his butane lighter being peppered throughout this episode. When our production team finished the interview, we drove back to Columbus in shock, having a hard time digesting Jeff's story. It was just too crazy to believe. Mr. Ruby came through for us when we inquired about speaking with his closest friends and family to corroborate his story. Sports legends like Pete Rose and Chris Collinsworth, music legends Bootsy Collins, and Jeff's daughter and ex-wife. It's an embarrassment of riches, really, because after all, Jeff is just some guy in the restaurant biz, right? But trust me when I say it, there could have been more. As Chris Collinsworth says in this episode, everybody has a Jeff Ruby story. So with that said, let's turn it over to the man himself, Mr. Jeff Ruby, where he takes us back to where it all started, the Jersey Streets. 
I was born in Newark, New Jersey. I lived all over. My mother moved uh, from one town to another in Jersey. My name was Brian Jeffrey Crams when I was born. My mother's husband saw the blue eyes and said, he's not mine. He started filing for divorce before I think I got out of the hospital from being born. That, that's determined my life. That was over then as far as a normal childhood. Because whether you're a senator or a serial killer, it all goes back to your, a person's childhood. I turned out to be somebody else's. I didn't know that until some my, my brother told me my senior year of high school. Then she marries Walter Ruby, and um, they changed my name to, to Ruby. And that was just being called never Brian, it was Jeff Ruby. In grammar school, I was Jeff Ruby. Then I'd walk to Hebrew school in Asbury Park, and I was Jeffrey Goldstein. My birth certificate still says Brian Kranz. So I'm Brian Kranz, I'm Jeff Ruby, I'm Jeff Goldstein. I got all of these names. Plus, I was Larry Brockton for a while. We'll explain more about the name Larry Brockton here in a bit. I was a rebel and a renegade. All I want to do is get in fights. When I was about eight years old, I had a nine years old little bike, and I watched Popeye on TV. The big enemy was Bluto. So I got in my bike and take a can of spinach with me and look for a Bluto. One time, there was a guy about five, six, seven, eight years older than me, and he looked like Bluto. He was huge. I said, okay, let's go. I ate the spinach. He kicked my ass. He literally had these big boots, and I was on the ground. He was kicking me in the head with these, and he was huge. So the spinach, I realized, is not the answer. You got to pick your battles. His aggressive nature was formed early on in the streets of New Jersey. The fights proved to be an important influence, but these streets were also influential because of another reason, restaurants that were owned by a very important person in his life. My mother had a restaurant called The Grapevine, and I worked there. I got some of my flamboyancy from her. You know, she she dressed nice. She was, you know, she was Miss Nork. She was beautiful. She featured parfaits, ice cream sodas, uh, bagel clusters for the Jewish neighborhood community, you know, had some, you know, lox and bagels and all that. Walter Ruby had a, a, a slimy grease spoon luncheonette on Raymond Boulevard in Newark, New Jersey, downtown, and that's a rough town. When my mother married, um, Sid Goldstein, who was the top hot dog guy in the state of New Jersey. I'd ride my bike all the way to Bradley Beach, which is a long ride, and to work at Sid's. But I wasn't being paid, but I learned, you know, I learned how to cook. Everything was, you know, quality. And he, uh, he wasn't an influence on my life. You know, he didn't really take any interest in me. A young Jeff Ruby took those early culinary influences to school. Uh, so I would go back and, um, and make um, submarine sandwiches with gabagol and Genoa salami and, and prosciutto and, and, oil, and the vinegar and oil and oregano. And then I'd eat it the next day for lunch. The other kids saying, where'd you get that sub? I said, I made it at my mother's restaurant. Well, can you bring me one? Number one, they smell, it was aromatherapy. You could smell the vinegar and oil. You could smell it. It was, what the hell is that? And these kids all wanted a sub from Jeff Ruby. So I said, there's 65 cents a piece. The cafeteria was 35 cents. It was the first time I learned, if you charge more but give them more and give them a better product, you can charge more. 
I was making submarine sandwiches like a dozen or two at my mother's restaurant and going to seventh grade and selling them. I would sell out every time. So the principal calls me in his office. He says, you can't uh, sell submarine sandwiches anymore. We got a cafeteria and that's what they got to buy. I said, listen, you still get the side dishes. You sell the milk extra, you sell the ice cream extra, they're gonna get the milk and they're gonna get the ice cream a la carte. I'm just selling one thing. He said, all right, and he let me go on. That was my first restaurant. And one day I'm sitting in class and I just had a bad feeling, something in my stomach. And there was a payphone in, in the hallway of the, of the school. I better call the grapevine. So I raised my hand, can I go to the bathroom? Yes, just go over, Jeff, go ahead. So I go to the phone booth and Connie, the, the waitress said, how are you doing, Connie? Oh man, I know. the chef didn't show up, blah, blah, blah. There's no chef, I don't know what we're gonna do for lunch. I said, my mother, no, she's home, she's sick. I never returned to school. I just took off and ran five miles exactly. And I get in there and I grab a cookbook I've never made a soup. I've done a lot of cooking here, but I've never made soup from scratch. So I get a cookbook and I'm making split pea soup and I got a big pot of it in the back little kitchen. I go back an hour or so later to check on my soup and there's this guy in there. And I said, who are you? He says, I'm the new chef. I came from the, uh, the temp service, whatever they called it back then. Then I go over and look at my split pea soup and it, it goes from green to like chartreuse. It looked horrible. I said, man, what happened? What did I do wrong with my split pea soup to the chef? He says, uh, oh, I put milk in it. You put milk in it. I said, the recipe doesn't call for milk. He said, well, I'm the chef and that's the way it's going to be. I said, no, you're not the chef. You're fired. I fired my first chef when I was 13 or 12. So early on, he was a sponge and soaked up all the various influences that surrounded him. But his first introduction to steak was about to come from an unlikely source. Guy Bordeaux was a great chef. So Guy Bordeaux is this big, striking man's man. He was having little soirees with my mother. I would catch some of that at the house. He was a stud. He was a, a, a man that a boy would want, a, a boy that's don't have a father, would want to be the son of, you know? He was impressive. I wanted to marry this guy. I want this to be my father. He's a French-Canadian, supposedly. He played for the Montreal Canadiens, supposedly. And a couple of friends of mine looked up how somehow, you know, we didn't have Google. Nobody's ever heard of Guy Bordeaux that played for the Montreal Canadiens. I said, well, he did. He winds up quitting or getting fired, whatever happened to that relationship. And uh, one day he calls me. He said, hey, Jeff, I got, a, I got a supper club up in North Bergen. Why don't you come up and see me? I go to the Asbury Park train station. I don't tell my mother. While I'm on that train and I'm stopped and going to the next train station, there's the newspaper racks, you know, you see everywhere, right? You can see the front page. And there's Guy, two other guys, and they're all been arrested. And he's not Guy Bordeaux, he's a gangster. Now I take a cab to get to his country club. And, and there he is with his two partners in the nightclub and I get there and I'm 13 years old and I walk in I said hi and he said hey, Jeff how you doing I said oh, I just read about you three in the paper and they all laughed 
they're out of jail. They're probably never going back to jail. It was Jerry's payoffs and everything. They would thought it was hilarious. You hungry? Want a steak? I said, yeah. I go in the, in the back and there's a chef back there, Afro-American guy. I said, well, this guy's gotta be good. This place is huge. You know, Buddy Hackett's performing. So he says, I'll make you steak. He takes a steak. He doesn't put it on a broiler. He doesn't put it on a grill. He doesn't put it on a griddle. He doesn't put it on a frying pan. He just throws it on a gas range with the flames come up and puts it right on the flames of the range. And it was damn good. So I wound up making four or five more for myself. That's said, man, you're, you love this stuff. So it was great. I learned how to cook a steak. My first steak I've ever cooked. If I saw something doing that today, I'd get him out of here, he doesn't know what he's doing. My mother, she was married four times. I call them my forefathers. It was Louis Kranz, Walter Ruby, Sid Goldstein, and Leon Wurzel. Leon was much later after I was already in college. None of my four stepfathers stepped up to be a father. If a kid grows up and doesn't have a person he wants to make proud, whether his father, his grandfather, his mother, that's a recipe for a bad future. Not having any discipline at home, my mother always getting remarried, moving from one town to another, I became kind of a, a wise guy, a punk. I was a fighter. Uh, I was a rebel. I was a renegade. I was undisciplined. I was born in, on the Jersey streets, Newark, New Jersey. I'm hanging out in Newark, New Jersey at seven, eight years old. I was getting drunk at the age of 12. Um, I wasn't doing anything. I didn't have any, any goals. Uh, I was a loser in loving every minute of it. The first time in my life I ever wanted to make someone proud, my homeroom teacher, Jeep Bednarik, the football coach, the head football coach, who had just come from Pennsylvania, where, where he was a you know, damn good coach, where football was really good, and, and all of a sudden uh, he became my idol. He became my role model. And he wasn't my coach yet. He was the varsity coach. So I go out for freshman football. And um, uh, there was two kids left that went to all these tryouts, but only one jersey left. So one kid is not gonna make the team. He said, all right, he had all the other kids on the team that have already been made the team get in a circle and me and this other kid get in the middle and fight it out. And last man standing gets the last jersey. I didn't care if I made the team or not, but I didn't want to lose the fight. So I got the jersey, I made the team, I was the last kid to make the team. And I didn't play at all. By my senior year, I was first team All-State, undefeated team, captain of the team. I had an F average my freshman year. I went up straight A's my senior year. I go out for wrestling my sophomore year, I didn't win a match. My senior year, I didn't lose a match. Jeep Bednarik. While he was finally introduced to his father figure, he made the decision to leave home because of one reason. Too many fights with my mother. So one day, um, I'm at home. She's drinking. She drank uh, VO a lot. The, the football game was on the radio, and she's hearing about the game, and we lost. And I wasn't on a team, okay? I was JV, and um, they lost. And she's bad-mouthing Jeep Bednarik. And that ticked me off. 
And I threw a jar of ragu tomato sauce or whatever it was against the kitchen wall, ran in my bedroom. I got whatever clothes I had. There was a, a picture on the wall in my bedroom where I had covered up a hole in the wall that I had punched. I had a little thing in that hole in the wall with $600. And because I had been working at Perkins Pancake House, my bedroom, my mother knew I never knew I left. I, it was on the end of the room. I went out that window, not through the front. And then there was an ice cream truck going by. I hop on it. There's a blue sticker, baby blue, powder blue, with white letters, no riders, on the truck. I rip it off. I put it on my suitcase, and it became my, my thing. It became my motivation, no riders. I go down to Main Street Asbury Park, and I check into the uh, YMCA. But I don't want my mother to find me. So they said, what's your name? I'd walked by, by a, a street somewhere. It said Brockton. I said, my name is Brockton, Larry Brockton. So I check in there as Larry Brockton. And I sleep there one night at the YMCA. And then uh, I says, I got to get out of this place. So the next day I wake up and I go to the boardwalk. And I slept under the boardwalk for a week or so. And, and then this girl whose dad owned boarding rooming houses that he would rent out. She said something to him. And, and he wanted to help me. He sold me, or he rented me the, 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 the room uh, for $8 a week. And there was a little kitchen in there. No bathroom, but there was a kitchen. And I come home one day, and they still talk about it in my high school reunion, and the only one I've been to 40 years later. They all went to their dad's and their dad's own grocery, whatever. They bought all this food and all this stuff. And I come home one day, and I got a, stock, a kitchen stocked full of food. I come home one day, I have, there's a black and white TV. And uh, my parents got a newer TV, they gave me their old one. So now I got a television, I got a kitchen. I'm living big now, I'm living large. My mother didn't go looking for me. She didn't care. If she cared, she'd go to the high school and find me. I'm Jeff Ruby at the high school. But she never went looking for me. I thought, well, this is cool, I can keep doing this. But he wasn't able to hide forever from his mom as his notable athleticism drew the spotlight of local press. I became a local celebrity. I was in the paper all the time. Jeff Ruby, student, gentleman, athlete. And it was about me. And then I made first team All-State, first team All-County, first team All-Shore in football. Uh, and then I wind up going undefeated in wrestling. And now I'm getting a lot of publicity because I'm the local sports star. So she's, she goes to the school. She said he ran away from home. Now, I'm a senior now. I had a truant officer all this time. So he takes me to the courthouse before a judge. My mother has an attorney, and, uh, and he puts up a good case. Kid was never abused, which I wasn't. You know, she, I don't think she ever hit me. She might have slapped me. Walter Ruby would take that metal belt of his and take my pants down and just whip my butt a lot with the belt. But now I'm, he's gone. And Sid goes, see, nobody abused me. I said to myself, this is going to be a tough case. True an officer, Sonny Herbert, he said, listen, this kid had all Fs. He was a loser. He didn't do anything but get in trouble. He's an F student, an F student. Now he's the star of the football team, and he's uh, got straight A's and blah, 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 and all this and that. Why would you want to disrupt and make him go back home? Just says, I agree. Let the kid live alone. As you can tell by now, Jeff has been an independent person from a very young age but he's still longing to fill the void that his father Louis Cran left in his life. 
However, this part of his story was about to take a very unexpected turn. My brother calls me up. He's at Monmouth College. And I would only see him, you know, once in a while. When they got divorced, he went with his father. And they lived far away, so I never really saw him. So I take my motor scooter to Monmouth College. And it's uh, quite a drive. He says, I got to talk to you. Louis Kranz is not your father. I said, who's my father? Louis Weiss, attorney my mother worked for. When you were born with blue eyes, the shit hit the fan. And I go back to uh, my rooming house, feeling sorry for myself. And I cry all night. So I go see Jeep at Nurek in the morning. I said, coach, I just found out my real father all this time wasn't my real father. He said, hey, were you still first team All-State and football captain of an undefeated team? Yeah. Are you a straight ace? Yeah. Are you still undefeated in wrestling? Yeah. And you're doing all this, the only kid in America doing any of this, living by himself with no parents. What the hell difference does it make who your father was? I stopped crying. Now I got a wrestling match and I'm exhausted because I never went to sleep. And I have never pinned anybody. I pinned him in 37 seconds. So I got my first pin and I found out who my father was. And I found out it didn't matter who my father was because my father figure said it didn't matter who my father was. Jeep Dneric. All my life I wanted to go to Cornell. That's the best hotel restaurant school in America. I remember one day watching that little black and white TV and it had, well, it's college time and right now here's, and Cornell University has the highest percentage of rejections. They don't give football scholarships at Ivy League schools. I go to the library and I read that Heinz uh, has this scholarship they do every year and they give $1,000 for a college scholarship. I fill out the, the application. And it saw the growth of my grades. You know, what are your grades? Fresh water. I filled out all the boxes. Then they said, have an essay about yourself. Huh, my essay's a novel. I get the scholarship. Not only that, they had one winner, grand winner of the four, and I was that guy. Fast forward to Cornell. I'd get up in the, uh, the fraternity and sing with the band. Or no, I'd sing and with the band. And the uh, upperclassmen, you ought to start your own band. And these were seniors, and I'm a freshman. So I started my own band. I was a lead singer. I wouldn't necessarily say that he's a singer-singer, but he knows how to hold a note, and he knows how a singer's supposed to sound. And I think he has fun with it, but he's not scared. You know, I will give him that. He's not scared. He's not scared to sing in front of anybody, I tell you that. That's funk icon Bootsy Collins. We're going to hear more from him later on. I get a call from this guy. He says, uh, yeah, we want your band, Lavender Hill Mob, to be the opening act for Sly at Hobart College. Sly and the Family Stone. Sly and the Family Stone is the greatest band ever. Ever. Our band did, like, every cover of Sly's songs. Dance, we, we did most of his songs was our set. So when he calls me, I hung up. I say, are you serious? Who is it? Well, I hang up. There are better bands in all of upstate New York, and there are better bands at Cornell than my band. But, but we were popular, and that's how he heard about us. We were very popular. When he called, he called back. He said, no, we want you to open up for Sly. What do you charge? I said, I charge 300 for every show. 
I, it was it was the deal. So we, we hook up and we get our stuff and and we go to Hobart College, and um, and we get there. And my bass player says, uh, "Hey Jeff, uh, my bass string just bust. I need a bass string." So I go. I said, "Well, I'll ask Sly and the Family Stone for a bass string." So they're over there in this van or whatever, and they're doing their thing. You know how bands wait in their tour bus or whatever. They, they had their thing. Okay? And I, and I haven't met him yet. I walk in the door, and it's like a steam room. Now I know why they're called Sly and the Family Stone. They're all stoned. And I see Sly. I says, Mr. Sly, I'm the opening act for you. My bass player just broke his, his bass string. Can we have a bass string? Sure. So he gives me a bunch of bass strings. We play. And we play our set. And, but we don't do any Sly songs. Then he does the show. Something happened in the middle of that show, he walks out. They left early. They didn't do the whole set. Now I had to, I had to follow Sly. They want me back. Well, you gotta go back and do another set. I said, fine, we'll do Sly in a fucking stone. We'll do, we'll do his songs now. <laughs> and we closed for him. We opened for Sly and the Family Stone and we closed for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is the band. So that was Sly. Eric Camford was, was president of Weingartner Hammonds, the company with 37 Holiday Inns from Anchorage, Alaska to Syracuse, New York. When I was a freshman, he was getting his master's there. He was a football player in Virginia, big guy. Part of my scholarship was to work. First, they put me at a fraternity house and there were rats running around. I was washing dishes, I, I, I left. But now they say, okay, you're gonna be work, you're gonna feed the varsity football team. So Eric ran that whole thing for the varsity football team. I was a wise guy, and I got, you know, he couldn't find me. I was eating prime rib in the kitchen of Statler Hall with, with the employees that worked there. He could never find me. He came up to me one day and said, listen, you think you're such a hot shit, okay? Because you're all state. Everybody around here is all state from wherever they came from in football. You get back to work. Four years later, he's recruiting. My best friend and, 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 and roommate, uh, other linebacker, uh, he, he comes back, he said, Rubes, Eric Camford wants to interview you. He's not gonna give me an offer. He wants to interview me so he can say, I'm sorry, uh, well, you're not good enough for us. He said, Rubes, he really wants you. So he interviews me and I say, I said, why do you, we didn't get along? He said, you were 18 years old. I've seen what you've done. You have had injuries like crazy. You've had knee operations. You're still playing, your grades. You've changed. You're the kind of guy we want. And so I'll think about it. Sheridan wants me. They're gonna fly me to Boston. My roommates are all going to go skydiving. I said, I can't, I gotta go to Boston for an interview with Sheridan. And they start calling me, come on chicken, blah, blah, blah. But I never showed to the airport. I never showed for the interview. I never called, I didn't know how to call. And we go skydiving. So I have really one offer and we want you to start in Syracuse. I said, well, I don't want to start in Syracuse. I want to go to Cincinnati. He said, why do you want to go to Cincinnati? Oh, it's your headquarters, right? I said, yeah, that's where we're headquartered. Well, I'm a Reds fan and that's why I want to go. He gives in, he says, you can have Cincinnati. You might be wondering, how did this Jersey boy become a Reds fan in the first place? Well, here's how. I'm about eight years old, by myself, watching a TV. And the Pirates are playing the Reds. 
I was rooting for the underdog. So the Reds are getting beaten by 15 to nothing or something. And next thing you know, the Reds are, you know, scored 10, 12 runs and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and it's, it's, it's quite a game, but it's like a football score, but they lose. And that from that day, the Reds, I like this team. And that was how I fell in love with the Reds. So this Reds fan now finds himself in Cincinnati. Dick Whitaker, who was a manager at the Holiday Inn, he was a Cornell grad, a couple years ahead of me. I didn't know him, but he was like the junior assistant. I was the, I was, he was like the assistant innkeeper and I was the junior assistant innkeeper. So I'm sleeping on his couch at the forum and that's where I'm living. And I'm paying him a little rent and I'm just sleeping on his couch and that's where I moved. And there's a place called the Den of the 40 Thieves. They had a bar down there. And there's this guy sitting at a bar stool at a high top table. I looked, I said, who is it? It's Johnny Bench. That's how I met Johnny. He came up to the, where I worked at the Holiday Inn at the Den of the Little Foxes, which was a kind of a playboy club with shows and food and all. And Pete Rose would come to the clubs, and that's how I met Pete. I've been friends with Jeff for, for so long, uh, I don't even know how many years. Uh, Jeff always hung around the athletes, because he was an athlete. I remember 1975, when we won the uh, World Series in Boston, uh, he was in the clubhouse after game six, when Fisk hit the home run, and he's in there wrestling, and he wasn't violent, but he was strong. I think he pinned Johnny Bench, who was scared he was going to hurt Johnny, break Johnny's arm or something. Jeff, we're in a World Series. You know, we got a couple games to go. They're in the clubhouse wrestling. We're all trying to break it up. <laughs> it wasn't hard to instigate Johnny to do something, and Jeff was worse than Johnny. Jeff just hung around with positive aggressive people. I was a lot more aggressive before Jeff Ruby come on the scene. If anything, he copied my style. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Spanky's was the name of the bar. I named it Spanky's at the Holiday Inn Sharonville. That's where I got in all those fights, by the way. You can leave Jersey, but Jersey doesn't leave you. The chief of police, Chief Noose, wind up being good friends with Eric Canford, president of the company. He says, you got this manager, and ever since he's been there, the place is doing business. He must be doing a good job drawing business. But this guy's had more fights with all calls of the police department there than ever before collectively. And when the cops get there and break it up, your manager's at the bottom of the fight. You gotta do something about fire, you gotta do something about this. So he calls my boss, Joe Cooper. So Joe Cooper says, uh, yeah, I wanna meet with you today at uh, six o'clock. I have no idea what the meeting's about. So now there's this guy sitting at the bar, the bar's packed, and Sharon, the little barmaid, been there forever, she says, Mr. Ruby, this guy won't pay his bill. I gotta stop fighting. I'm getting too many fights. I've already been told I've been getting too many fights, you know, whatever. Everywhere I go, I'm getting fights. And I'm the manager of the place. I'm gonna handle this different. I said, sir, hi, I'm the uh, innkeeper here. Would you mind if I talk to you? I'll get him out of the element where he doesn't get to show off. Maybe just talking to him reasonably away from other people. I said, you drank these drinks. Let me have your credit card at the front desk. And he pays the bill. 
I said, man, I've learned my, boy, this is how to do it. I go back to the bar with the credit card uh, voucher to give it to Sharon, and a guy comes from behind me, and boom. And I just turn real quick, don't even look, and I just, you know, hit him with a right. It's this guy. Now he's laying on the ground. He's purple by now. There's a trickle of red blood coming down. Ken Griffey Jr.'s mother is my hostess. She sees the whole thing. And she looks at me, Jeff, I think he's dead. So who shows up for the six o'clock meeting is my boss, Joe Cooper, about stop fighting. He has to walk across this guy's body to get to me. And Joe says, I guess I'm too late. At the same Holiday Inn, there's this beautiful cocktail waitress, Raquel. But she was going with the manager who I had hired. Originally, he was my boss. Okay, we both worked at Holiday Inn. I was dating one of his managers. Then they break up. I was probably there for about a year when I met another guy. She's now engaged to Elvis, Steve Ricks. He's Elvis because he could sing and he's good looking and all that. Steve was a stunning man. He was like 6'4 and Italian. And he was in the, the band Dallas. He was a lead singer in the band. He's tall, he's dark, he's handsome, right? And the Vandells are the best. They're a show band. They play Vegas. They play everywhere. Okay. And he is the star. Jeff had called me about, I don't know, maybe two months into my engagement to this other guy. And he was like, um, listen, if you're really over Rick, which that would be the manager. Okay. He says, I, you know, would like to take you out. And I said, I, do you understand I'm engaged? And so what Jeff did is he booked the, the band here in Cincinnati. I started booking the Vandells just so I could see her. And that's where I busted move, okay? So while he's singing, I'm hitting on her. I said, let's go have a pizza over here. And I just, you know, started talking to her. There was Jeff, always there, you know, sending pizza to the family and making sure that, you know, Everybody had their drinks and, I mean, really pouring it on. I struck up more of a friendship with him at that point. And then when I went back on the road, I realized that maybe I should give this guy a try. I mean, he just wasn't going to let up. I started coming home more and more on the weekends. And then when I was here, I would run into him. And then eventually I ended the relationship with Steve and I literally came home right to Jeff. I mean, Jeff was just, he was just very smart, you know, and he was very quick. And I thought, this is the kind of guy I could just talk to for hours and hours and hours, you know, and pick his brain. And I'm sure to learn from this man, you know. And Raquel and I fell in love. And we got engaged. That was pretty much the story. Raquel and I are closer now than when we were married. I would consider Jeff literally one of my best friends today. I know that if there's anybody on this whole earth that I could ever count on, and it would be Jeff. He has always been that type of a ex-husband slash friend to me. I think we're both smart enough to know not to remarry each other and we're better off as friends. As Jeff gains a woman in his life, he receives tragic news about another, his mother, Leonore. We had made up. She had gotten remarried while I was at Cornell. And when I would come home, I'd stay in her apartment, you know, sometimes. Well, now she's got cancer. 
and she's not going to live. And I visited her in the hospital, and I wanted to meet Raquel. Beautiful, just striking woman, like a James Mansfield. She was, you know, blonde and tall and big, and just, she was just a beautiful woman. And when she was passing, he went up and over the chart with making her life comfortable at hospice. You know, he wanted a room with windows, and when that didn't happen, he made it happen. It's Riverview Hospital in Red Bank, New Jersey. She doesn't have a Riverview. I walk down the hall, and I see an empty room with a Riverview. So I move the freaking bed, and I roll it down to another room. And a nurse comes out. I just said, I'll pay the difference. I don't care what it is, I'll pay the difference. I, I want my mother to have a Riverview. She's not gonna last long. I want her to have a nice room by herself, a private room, okay? And she met Raquel and, and all that. And then we stayed there another day or two. And I said, uh, I love you and all of that. And I meant it. And then she died. When she died, he really fell apart. He said he had a, a, a tough relationship with her. I, I think a lot of it was just because she just was maybe a little overbearing for him. And she didn't tell him who his real father was. I think he realized that he had the best mother in the world. Not good with picking men out, but certainly a mother that loved him more than life. She was his pride and joy. She never got to see my first restaurant. Without her, there are no restaurants. I, I learned the business. I loved the business. My mother did it first class. She was proud of me, yeah. Jeff's mother passed away shortly before he opened up his first restaurant, The Precinct. Raquel is working at a place downtown. She hears the rumor that Amanda's is for sale. I knew the place because it was our competitor. We had a disco, Lucy's in the Sky. They had a disco upstairs and downstairs was uh, their Mexican restaurant. They had already had a thing they called Celebrity Chef Night to get business in on that day. He'd do the cooking, that would make that place busy on that night. They asked me to do it. You got a town with very few celebrities if I'm one of them. So I'm a celebrity chef. I do all Italian food. It was so packed, they had to put tables in the driveway and on the sidewalk. And it was the busiest night they ever had. It was busier than any Saturday night they had. Now the place is for sale. Jeff was at Holiday Inn still, that he was so unhappy and just so miserable. You know, because he really, his talent was opening up these nightclubs. So I called Johnny. I said, listen, I got a chance to buy Amanda's. Johnny says, I'll back you. Pete says, I'll back you. Back in 81, he was a kid, he needed financing. And we all had uh, so much belief in him to run a restaurant. He said, wait, are you still gonna work at Holiday Inn? I said, no, I'm gonna quit Holiday Inn and do this. He said, well, then I'll take two shares if you're gonna do this full time. We all knew we weren't gonna get rich, uh, but we were willing to support him. He's a little bit of a bullshitter, uh, but it's good bullshit because uh, he's confident. And we all went into partners with Jeff because we had so much confidence in his ability to uh, run a restaurant. He just understands the restaurant business. 
And more importantly, he understands the customer. There's nothing there but bike, uh, bike bar fights or all rundown boarded up houses on Walworth, which are now all developed. It's in the middle of nowhere down there in the poor part of town. But Jeff decided the precinct was the place. There's no way this place was going to make. They had 52 liens. Prime interest rate was 20 to 21 percent, the highest in America's history. It was the worst economy since the Great Depression. There's what a great time to buy a restaurant. That didn't matter. We got Johnny Bench, we got Pete Rose, and now because Johnny and Peter in it, okay, and you're in 1981, and those are two of the biggest names in sports anywhere. Johnny had friends, I had a couple friends, and we get 10 partners, and they all got 4.9%, and I got 51%. Um, I can't lease the place. We release it. We gotta buy it. And uh, why? Because there's 52, you can't lease the place. You gotta buy it. By now, I've given my notice. Now I say, listen, I, I want to unnotice myself here. I get fired. It was kind of a, I quit, you're fired argument. So I go back to Johnny. I said, Johnny, I don't have a job. We got to buy this place, okay? He said, okay. So we go in there and now we buy the place for $300,000. I got a dozen yellow roses from him. And he said, it was just a note that said, um, we got it, quit your job. And I quit that day. We had gone to every steakhouse. I mean, down at Burns Steakhouse in Florida, we'd gone everywhere trying to do as much research as possible to have the best steak. And we went to this place in Dayton and it was just kind of a small restaurant, took no reservations. And the steak was just, Phenomenal. Every time. Every time. And Jeff needed to know what that seasoning was. So we worked out a plan. I was going to distract the manager at the front desk. And Jeff was going to go in with a white jacket and a pen and look like an inspector. And he just walked right into the kitchen and started looking around trying to find this seasoning. Well, we got thrown out. We went back, okay, like at two o'clock in the morning to the alley. And in the dumpsters, he was gonna get in the dumpsters. And I'm like, you're gonna get in the dumpsters. He got in the dumpsters, but I was just on standing guard to make sure there was no cops around coming down the road. And um, I, was, I just see his hand in a bottle. So he got the seasoning. We worked out a deal with those people. It changed some of the ingredients, and that's how the precinct steak began. I broke every rule how to do a steakhouse. Okay, New York steakhouses had old men that were waiters. They were brash. They, it was dark. It was a men's club. I broke every rule. And Eric Canford, who was my mentor, said, Jeff, it ain't going to work. You're in a lousy neighborhood. It's a horrible neighborhood in the railroad tracks. Economy's the worst it could ever be. And you only got 68 seats and you're gonna be slow during the week, and you're not gonna have enough seats to recapture that business to make your mortgage on Saturday when, uh, when you're, uh, but I did it anyway. Slow in the beginning, scary, very scary. We had a whole staff of people all dressed up, <laughs> no customers, but then eventually and slowly and quietly, 
it got out that we had this restaurant. And, and then it just took off. He's smart. He understands food and he understands the customer. Okay, you put those ingredients together, you're gonna have a success. We were packed every day and they came at five o'clock and they ate till midnight and I wouldn't let them have dessert so they could get them out of there. And I had to buy them a drink upstairs to get them out so I could refill that table. First of all, it was small. So that meant it was hard to get in. And there was always a line at the precinct. And secondly, uh, the upstairs was always wall to wall with girls. They all went to the precinct. Five years after the precinct came the waterfront. It was floating on the waters of the Ohio River, just south of Cincinnati in Covington, Kentucky. Waterfront was a big deal. I mean, that was a big ass boat. That boat was two, two and a half stories tall. And that was probably the only restaurant I've ever seen it had three different entrances, okay? One was upstairs was where the club was. Two was where the dining was. And three on the right was where all the people in the swimming attire was. We spoke with Brittany Ruby Miller, Jeff's daughter and CEO of Jeff Ruby Culinary Entertainment. Her first job within the company was at the waterfront. So the waterfront was a floating five-star restaurant, um, seafood steakhouse sushi uh, on the Ohio River. Uh, at one point, had a, a nightclub upstairs, had a, a really cool bar and cave and pool and waterfall. I mean, it was like Disneyland on the Ohio River for adults. Just like Jeff needed Pete Rose and Johnny Bench to invest in the precinct, he needed another group to help him open up the waterfront. So in comes Chris Collinsworth. I lived in Jeff's places when it was the precincts, and I was going to open this other restaurant. And he always had Johnny Bench or Pete Rose or somebody investing in him. So now it's Boomer and me. We were in a restaurant. We were going down to look at a place in Fort Lauderdale. I wasn't going to look for a place. I was going down to look for girls and, and we were going to go to bars. But <laughs> he, was, he was going down to look at a restaurant. And so he asked the bartender, where is, what was the name of this place? Yesterday's. And the guy said, oh, you can swim there. And we we're on the canal or whatever. It's just right across the canal. And we go, yeah, right, Shamu can swim across there. So, you know, we're all just playing. So then we go back to our drinks and we go back and sort of hanging out. And the next thing we hear is splash. Like, what the heck is that? And we turn around and Jeff Ruby has jumped in this canal and is going to try and swim like 150 yards across to the other restaurant because we were making fun of him. Like, oh my God, what is this idiot doing? So of course the entire restaurant moves to the edge of the water to see what's going on here. And Jeff makes it about 10 feet and he goes, oh, my shoulder, oh, my shoulder. And he like threw his shoulder out because he had a bad shoulder from football. So now he's in there flailing like a fish and he's like, he's got one arm and he can't, like, oh my God, what is this idiot? And so I'm looking around and I'm gonna throw him something, you know? I'm not gonna dive in, I'm just gonna throw him something. And so this other guy who's there jumps in the water. And cause he, I mean, it really, really did look a little distressed. And I was like, oh God, I gotta jump inside. Boom, I, I jump in the water. And so the two of us sort of push him over to the edge. But now the edge is about three or four feet off of the water. And so now we gotta push his big ass up over 
because he can't pull with his shoulder to get up over the top. So we finally, everybody, we get him out of there. We climb out, the other guy climbs out. So it's the three of us. And we're all sitting on the edge of this thing. We're going, you know, we're all trying to catch our breath. And the general manager of the restaurant comes over and he goes, you guys know you're thrown out, right? And I go, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we got that. We, we understand, just give us a minute here to catch our breath. So we, now, you know, we're soaking wet. Now we've, we've got to go back to the hotel and start this whole friggin' thing over. And I get back to the hotel and all of a sudden Jeff starts hyperventilating. He's like, <laughs> I'm like, what the hell are you doing? So we call 911. I think he's having a heart attack. I have no idea. Here comes the sirens and here comes all the paramedics into this thing. And so they put this bag, you know how they do when you hyperventilate, they put a bag so he blows into the bag. <laughs> and he finally starts to settle down a little bit. And then I go, well, exactly you know what's going on here and the paramedics asking him mr ruby what is it what is, what is bothering you what is it and he pulls the bag down and he goes it's my toe i'm like your toe what are you talking about it's your toe and they look down and he has like this monster splinter in his big toe and he's hyperventilating and i think he's having a heart attack and all i can think to do is go i'm gonna kill you it's just another day in the life of Jeff Ruby. I mean, this is, you go right down the list. Everybody has a Jeff Ruby story. As Chris just said, everybody has a Jeff Ruby story. He happens to have a few. This next one involves him meeting his wife. I'm not giving all the details of this because my wife would kill me. She just happens to be in town for one day before she goes to law school. And I meet her. And I'm like, oh my God, she's beautiful. She's going to law school. I go, this girl, she's awesome. So I'm with Denny Jansen, who does the local sports here in town, and Jeff Ruby. And I swear it went just about like this. I go, I go, hey, I go, I go, I just met the cutest girl. And one of them, I assume it was Jeff who started it, goes, uh, oh yeah, I know her ex-husband. I go, what? And, and, and Denny goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's no big deal. She has the two cutest kids you've ever seen. Uh, she's unbelievable. And Jeff pipes back in and says, nobody can believe she's 30 years old. So this is ping pong and back and forth. And meanwhile, I'm thinking I'm in love. And they're telling me that she's a 30 year old divorcee with two kids, but I'd already asked her out. So, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna meet. So I go over there to her house to pick her up. And I'm, <laughs> I'm literally walking in the house going, where are the kids? We come out and drive to the place. And at some point, we're going to the precinct, to Jeff's restaurants. At some point, I say to her, I go, um, do you know Denny Jansen, and who's the sportscaster? And she goes, yeah, he's the one that does sports on TV, right? And I go, yeah, yeah. She goes, why do you ask? And I said, oh, I don't know. He said, um, he said that he knew your ex-husband. Now, I would know what this look meant. Then, I didn't know what that look meant. And she looked at me, and I'm going, oh, she's embarrassed. I go, hey, it's no big deal. I, it doesn't bother me at all. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be out here with you and be going on. But, you know, he was just telling me about your two great kids and 
Now I get triple the look. And she still hasn't said a word. And it finally dawns on me that I have been 1,000% had. And I look at her and I go, you were never married, were you? That I don't suppose you have two kids? I bet you're not 30 years old either, are you? Because I'm 20. And I, <laughs> I go, I am gonna kill this son of a bitch. He has gotten me before, but he has never gotten me where it might have cost me ultimately my wife, my kids, my family, my existence. And yet, when you talk to Jeff about it, what will you say? Oh yeah, I introduced them. I, I'm the one. I'm the one responsible. He's the one responsible for almost it never happening. That's what he's responsible for. With the waterfront opened and the upstairs of the precinct being renovated, Jeff found himself working more than usual, and soon to be in a life-changing situation. He was at work all the time. One of the employees comes over and says, "Mr. Ruby, your wife wants to see you. Uh, she's in the parking lot." Uh, no, forget about it. No. Another kid comes up. Mr. Ruby recalls, just, she won't leave. She's not going to leave. So I go down there. She said, get in the car. I said, well, I've got a, I got a private part. I've got an opening. Get in the epic car. I just said, we're going home. And he was like, no, we're not. Here, you're going home if you want that. No, I'm not going home. I said, Jeff, I said, I need you to come home. Okay. Because you got to understand, I'm eight months pregnant. Okay, um, I need help with the kids, you know, and I'm like, we're going home. I get in the car. I say, I got to get back. She stops at a red light. Uh, you make a left. You go into my house in Anderson. She makes the turn left. And he just said, this is bullshit. He goes, I'm not going home yet. And he got out of the car and he fell and hit his head severely. He didn't want to fight with my mom. He wanted to escape. He didn't think the car was moving that fast. There was blood coming out of his ear and out of his mouth and out of his nose. So I, I pulled the car up and around in front of him so that nobody else could run him over. And the, and, and the couple behind us called the ambulance. Next thing you know, I'm in a coma, brain surgery. I'm listed as brain dead. They gave me a 10% chance to live. One of the doctors had come out and they said, this doesn't look good. And if he comes out of a coma, you know, we don't know how he's gonna be. We, they were basically telling me that you might not even want him to live. I mean, he was in a coma for almost 30 days. I had no idea what he was going to wake up and be like, you know, or if he was even going to know me. It was hard because we had two little ones at home. And like I said, I was eight months pregnant. So I'm in the hospital, okay? I come out of the coma. I'm not talking yet, but I'm out of the coma, okay? My wife is up there at the hospital. It's like two in the morning, and she sees a tear go in my eye, and she sees me just go still and close my eyes. Brad Mullen, one of my new researchers, she calls him up at two in the morning. He said, Brad, I think he's dead. I said, you gotta come and look at him. And he goes, no, he's not in. I go, no, you, you, I'm not leaving here. You come down here and you look at him and you tell me he's okay. And so he did. He went down with me. And from the second that he put that little um, flashlight in his eyes, 
He started pulling plugs and said, get her out of here, we gotta go. And they rushed in bed right back up to surgery. And at that point, they had to put a shunt in his brain. I was just shouting, Jeff, you can't leave us. Don't you dare leave us. Don't you leave me with these two babies. Jeff Ruby's story is one of beating the odds again and again. But at this point, the odds seem to be beating him. Part two of the Jeff Ruby story coming up on the next episode of Profiles. From Westlord Media, this has been Profiles. I'm Vince Tornero, president and executive producer at Westlord Media and host of this podcast. This series has been created by me and my associate producer, Kevin Skubak. And we would, of course, like to first thank Mr. Jeff Ruby for being so generous with his time and his assistance in lining up other guests for this podcast. we got to thank those guests, Brittany Ruby Miller, Raquel Ruby, Pete Rose, Chris Collinsworth, and the great Bootsy Collins. Additional acknowledgement to other important Jeff Ruby staff. You have Ben Stallard, Olivia Johnson, Mariel Wood, and the entire team at Jeff Ruby Cincinnati. They're great people. We read Jeff Ruby's book, Not Counting Tomorrow, as well as his daughter's book, Five Star Life. There are links to both of those in the show notes. Last thing, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and share it with friends and family. We greatly appreciate it. So from Westlore Media, we appreciate you listening, and we'll see you next time here on Profiles. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a a three-times-a-week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it.